0: and welcome to an eclectic humanist. Today, I think I'd like to continue the ruminations I began on Roe v. Wade last episode, and specifically to jump into some biblical questions, as well as some questions on the ethics of belief, which I think at the moment is not exactly a neutral question. Way back in 1877, William K. Clifford published an essay titled The Ethics of Belief, in which he argued that we're ethically responsible, not just for the actions in which we engage, but also for the positions that we hold. Specifically, he argues that no belief that informs an action is ethically neutral, and that insofar as all beliefs inform actions in some way, we are ethically obliged to believe only things that are demonstrably true, and thus to reject beliefs that are not demonstrably true. Moreover he argues that if we reach certainty through motivated reasoning rather than through honest investigation we are also ethically culpable for both the content and the consequences of our beliefs no matter how sincerely they may be held he uses the example of a ship owner the ship is aging and not in good repair but is scheduled for departure on a transoceanic journey bearing a full cargo of emigrant families the ship owner stands to make a tidy profit on the journey, and delays due to inspection and repair will be both long and costly, so he convinces himself that the ship is sound. Reminding himself that it's already made many crossings without incident, and that providence is benevolent, he comes to the sincerely held conviction that the ship is seaworthy, and sends her on her way with a light heart and a clear conscience, whereupon partway through the journey, the ship sinks. Now. According to Clifford, the shipowner is culpable on two accounts. First, he's to blame for sending to sea a ship that is unfit to make the journey. In this regard, he shares the responsibility for all lives lost. But more basically, even had the ship made the crossing safely and subsequently been inspected and repaired, he would still have been ethically wrong in the way he went about coming to his sincerely held belief, as he did so by intellectually dishonest means, by motivated reasoning. It's largely in this context of being ethically responsible for our beliefs that I approach the question of access to abortion. And as discussed last episode and... Supported by reams of data elsewhere, the restriction of abortion rights does not and will not reduce incidence, but has, does, and will put women seeking this medical procedure at greater risk of injury and death. Those espousing these restrictions, then, regardless of the motivated reasoning they use to justify their position, also always bear the ethical burden of that harm. There is, by now, no excuse not to know this. There can therefore be no moral high ground for the anti-choice position. Righteous ignorance is still ignorance, oppression backed by mythology is still oppression, and a gold-plated turd will never smell like frankincense. To make things more concrete, what exactly are we talking about? Last episode, I answered this question with reference to the bearer of the uterus. Today, we need to take the fetus into account. And it's here that we're most likely to run into muddled thinking. So, for the sake of both clarity and expediency, let's discuss some terms. In their 1978 paper, Abortion and Rights, George and Sheila Grant go to great lengths to establish the humanity and the aliveness of a fetus in a human womb, and then take this humanity as a basis for according it the full slate of generally recognized human rights. Well, fine. There's a lot here that I agree with. A human egg fertilized by a human sperm cell can only produce a human embryo, which, moreover, should also be considered alive, biologically speaking. That is, in the strictly biological sense, I grant that life begins at conception. The problem is, both of these issues are red herrings. They're complete distractions. No one disputes the biological humanity of a human fetus, or a human embryo, or a human blastocyst and no one disputes that, even before viability, the being thus labeled partakes in the processes that biologists associate with life. So the fuck what? The question isn't, is it human? As if it might somehow be a chimp or an armadillo or a wombat. The question is, is it a person? Grant and Grant silently assume an equivalence between the two, but the equivalence is not self-evident, and has not been in the Western philosophic tradition for a very long time. Human is a biological category, basically a descriptor, whereas person is a political philosophical category, something that is accorded by virtue of criteria that vary from thinker to thinker and from tradition to tradition. And while we may take the two as equivalent in colloquial usage and allow a large degree of overlap, thus the effectiveness of this rhetorical move in popular polemics, to draw them into an unspoken equivalence is deeply deceptive. Consider how many humans have had their personhood denied over the course of history, whether for reasons of race, gender, religion, socioeconomic status, or some other arbitrary criterion. So, the relevant question, then, might appear to be not whether the fetus is human, but rather whether it's a person. If it isn't, then there can be no contest between the interest of the fetus and the interest of the mother, and thus no argument against abortion. The interest of the mother by virtue of her personhood are preeminent. End of discussion. Many anti-choicers since the grants have recognized this, and so argue not that the fetus is human, but that it is, in fact, a person. So, for the time being, just for the sake of discussion, let's yield that ground. Let's just hypothetically accord the fetus, personhood, and let's do it by whatever criteria you, the listener, use to define the term. And then, let's see where this concession leads. An obvious question that arises is, given a conflict of interests between two persons regarding a given set of resources... Whose interests take priority? To answer this question, we need to establish what these resources are, but that's easy, isn't it? The mother's body. We're talking about the mother's body. That is all we are talking about. So which person's interests take priority with that? Or to put it another way, Can your body be co-opted against your will and its resources forced to serve the interests of another backed by the force of government and leaving you with no legal recourse and thus no bodily sovereignty? This is the real issue here, and it always has been. The sovereignty one has over one's own body, and the attempt by the religious right to usurp that. Let's posit an extreme case, just for illustration. Say, a family member needs a kidney transplant, or even just a blood transfusion, and for reasons of time, blood type, and genetics, the donation has to come from you and only you. In this situation, does your relative have a legal claim on your kidney or on your blood? The answer, of course, is no. A person in the U.S. or Canada cannot be legally compelled to surrender so much as one drop of blood even where that blood is needed to save another person's life. Period. The end. And this is as it should be. It's the lowest possible bar of bodily sovereignty. And if your own body is not even yours, then nothing is. If your body can be taken from you, anything else can be taken from you as well. So, if you are an anti-choicer, ask yourself this. Would you compel one person to have their bodily resources consumed against their will in order to save another person's life? Would you support legislation that put you in that position? Of course, you can morally condemn someone for being unwilling to give a pint of blood to save someone else, and quite frankly, that condemnation would be justified, but it would not be a basis for legislating another person's bodily sovereignty away. What the gist of this line of thought points to is that If we accord personhood and even a full slate of human rights to a fetus, the fetus's claim on the mother's body can still never exceed or even equal the claim of the mother herself. To argue that it does is to argue not that the fetus is equal to other humans. Rather, it's positing a special status for the fetus, above and beyond what we accord to any other category of being. And if this seems an extreme claim, look at it this way. Remember the argument about the pint of blood required to save another person's life? Well, let's say that the person in question is a newborn, and the one from whom the blood is needed is the mother. In that case, should the mother, for whatever reason, refuse consent to a transfusion, there is no legal mechanism in either Canada or the U.S. that could compel her to do so. What this means regarding the anti-choice position is this. Though they may not say the quiet part out loud, anti-choicers are arguing that the state should accord a legal status to the fetus regarding its claims on the mother's body, that it does not accord to any other person in any other circumstance. In other words, and let this sink in, they are arguing for a legal model in which we lose rights the instant we are born. In fact, they are instituting that model. And while this does actually track with voting records of most conservative legislators regarding social programs, it is out of line with virtually all thinking on the subject of human rights domestically and globally, in which we, the autonomous human persons, are the bar. There is no category above us. So even if we concede personhood to the fetus, it still does not have a superior claim on the mother's body to the claim of the mother herself. But, is the fetus a person? It's time to set that rhetorical concession aside. Given that the anti-choice position in North America comes almost entirely out of conservative Christianity, we need to approach the question from a specifically biblical point of view. What is the value of a fetus in the Bible? And for that matter, what is the value of a baby? So, let's pretend now, just for shits and giggles that the Bible or any other religious mythological text could be in any way relevant to the making of laws in a democracy with a secular constitution. And let's even throw the anti-choicers a nice, big, juicy bone in the form of letting them keep whatever Bible bits they choose via the time-honored hermeneutic of cherry-picking. But while we're at it, just to keep things honest, let's also toss a few lemons into the pie. What does the Bible actually say? about both babies and the unborn. When I was studying the Bible in grad school, I wrote a paper on every early modern English translation of Psalm 137, one of the Psalms of the Babylonian exile. It begins, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. And it concludes, O daughter Babylon, you devastator! Happy shall be they who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall be they who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Lovely stuff. Nice and visceral. And incidentally, there are versions in the Book of Common Prayer that include this psalm, but omit the conclusion. Apparently, Yahweh needs an editor, or at least a good spin doctor. But of course, there's more. There is always more. Well, I don't have time to address every passage in detail, here are just a few examples of the way the Bible views babies. Numbers 31, verses 17 to 18 is a nice one, especially from a family values point of view, and we all know how the religious right loves their family values. Moses instructs his conquering army as they are about to commit genocide on the Midianites. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man by sleeping with him, but all the young girls who have not known a man by sleeping with him keep alive for yourselves. I'll avoid commenting on the likely fates of those young girls, those children, lucky enough to be spared. That might be a subject for a future episode. So, moving on. Deuteronomy 2.34 is also quite heartwarming. At that time we captured all the towns, and in each town we utterly destroyed men, women, and children. We left not a single survivor. Then, of course, there are the instructions for the Amalekite genocide in First 1 Samuel 15.3. Now, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Or, returning to the theme of vengeance against Babylon, consider the words imputed to Yahweh himself in Isaiah 13 verses 16 to 18. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives raped. See, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and no delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. Then, of course, there are the instructions on how to treat idolaters, that is, people who do not worship the God of Abraham, In Ezekiel 9.6, cut down old men, young men, and young women, little children, and women. Or, if Hosea is more your bag, you might enjoy these. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and a dry breasts. That's 9.14. Or, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. That's 1316. And yes, I can already hear someone out there drawing a great big breath to utter that favorite old chestnut, but you're taking it out of context. This objection comes up whenever one or another biblical atrocity is pointed out, and I suppose the need for such hand-waving is the principal justification for the intrinsically dishonest field of apologetics. And hell, I even accept the claim as at least somewhat legitimate. I'm reading the text simply for what it actually says, and attributing to its authors the intellectual integrity of meaning what they say. They may have meant something else as well, and that's fine. The Bible is a complex anthology of ancient myths, and mythology is almost always doing more than what you see on the surface. A lifetime of studying and teaching the myths of many cultures, Western and non-Western, polytheistic and monotheistic, has made this more than clear. But Even at the most charitable, the writers cannot have consistently meant the opposite of what they said, and done so just at those times when their statements happen to most offend our modern sensibilities. The text says what it says, and the honest reader cannot make it say something else. In fact, an honest reader wouldn't even try. But on the topic of honesty, aren't there also passages in the Bible that suggest some notion of the sanctity of life? Yes. Of course there are, I don't dispute that, nor do I need to, to make my case, which is namely this, the Bible does not support the sanctity or special status of either babies or the unborn, and nowhere, I repeat, nowhere, is a fetus accorded a greater standing than that granted to an autonomous person. Before wrapping up this part of the conversation, though, I'd like to go back to numbers, particularly Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31. In this passage, the Lord, verse 11, is credited with speaking to Moses regarding a test to be performed on women suspected of adultery. The instructions involve a priest forcing a woman to drink a concoction referred to as water of bitterness, in verse 19, that will induce a miscarriage if and only if she has had sex with someone other than her husband. According to the Lord, the priest is also to administer the following oath. If no man has lain with you, if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, the Lord make you an execration and an oath among your people when the Lord make your uterus drop, your womb discharge." Now, may this water that brings the curse enter your bowels and make your womb discharge, your uterus drop. That's verses 19 to 22. After the forced ingestion of these bitter waters, the following passage sums up the results. When he has made her drink the water, then, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall discharge, her uterus drop, and the woman shall become an execration among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be immune and be able to conceive children. That's verses 27 to 28. To sum up, what Yahweh says to Moses is this. If a woman is even suspected of adultery, she is to be forced by a religious official to consume a substance that will both induce a miscarriage if the suspicions are correct, and, depending on how you read the text, Maybe render her infertile. Can I get an amen? To a Bible believing Christian, this is coming from the highest authority. These were Yahweh's words to one of his most important prophets. And as it turns out, we have a name for exactly the process described here. It's called a medical abortion, which incidentally is the method most commonly used in North America. So, no, just no. The Bible does not support the claim. That a fetus is equal to a born infant, let alone that it occupies a preferred status. Nor does it support a fetus's right to life where the interests of born persons are concerned, as long apparently as the interests in question are those of the mother's husband, or in other words, a man. That is, by the numbers, as it were. A woman is either an appropriate or an inappropriate vessel for a man's progeny, with no agency or legitimate interest of her own, even where her own body is concerned. Oh wait, this is starting to look familiar. Welcome to America. I bring this up, by the way, not to disparage Christianity or Christians, broadly speaking. The current rabid emphasis on denying and repealing abortion rights is emphatically not necessary to Christianity. It's a virulent political position adopted by the religious right, with a morally and intellectually dubious history, relying on selective readings and exclusions of a mythological text. The absolute ban on abortion that conservative Christians have been striving for since 1973 is simply not biblical. Can you be a devout Christian and still support bodily sovereignty? Yes, you absolutely can. Many do. Even in the hyper-religious U.S., most mainline Protestant denominations, and even Catholics by a modest majority, support a woman's right to choose. It is, as mentioned in the last episode, mostly white evangelical denominations that are driving this attack on women, along with conservative Catholics, and therefore mostly conservative Christianity, that needs to be opposed in this regard. Let them believe what they wish. They absolutely have that right. But no religious group, no matter how vocal, should be allowed to legislate its parochial little morality onto the bodies of others. And where they try, they must always be fought, by whatever means are available. The alternative is a theocratic dystopia whose opening act is now upon us. So, to bring things back to where we began, Clifford puts it well. Beliefs are not ethically neutral, but come with responsibilities. In his words, no simplicity of mind, no obscurity of station can escape the universal duty of questioning all that we believe. And more importantly, he goes on, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. This part bears repeating, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Anti-choicers talk about saving babies as an excuse for restricting access to safe abortions, but the evidence is against them. Their objective of restricting access to safe abortions does not reduce abortions, but does put poor and vulnerable women and many trans people at risk. Their claim is demonstrably false and thus ethically culpable not only in its effect, but in the intellectual failure that preceded it. And their position itself is therefore ethically bankrupt. Against them as well is the fact that drawing an equivalence, often silently, between the categories of fetus or embryo or blastocyst and baby, for instance, or between human and person, is at best deceptive and often intellectually dishonest. I believe deliberately so. And finally, though there are certain passages in the Bible that might be honestly interpreted as granting some moral standing to the fetus, that standing is at best ambiguous and thus cannot support the absolute position that the Christian right is now imposing upon a society in which they are not only a minority, but a rapidly shrinking minority, and more on this next episode. On that note, though, I should probably sign off for today. i hoped to wrap up a couple of other lingering questions from the last episode, for example, what is actually going on? of which the current push from the religious right is just a symptom, and why I, a Canadian man, am weighing in on the matter at all, but it looks like these will require a third installment. If you've listened this far, thank you. I am genuinely grateful. And until next time, just remember, never concede the moral high ground to an anti-choicer. Their rhetoric may be about saving, quote, babies, end quote, but the effect of their actions is to control and otherwise harm women, already disempowered women, most of all don't let that happen. This really is a fight against theocracy, and it's been brewing for a very long time. So until next time, be safe, be informed, and be kind to each other.